This is always a wonderful sight and a great occasion, brothers and sisters, and I thrill to add my testimony to that of our President, these great leaders who have preceded me. How delighted I felt this morning to see these young people assemble, and to hear their sweet voices tell, I think, of the greatest story since the birth of our Savior. Someone once said, I'm intensely interested in the future because I expect to spend the rest of my days there. <laughs> I get excited about young people because they project that kind of a positive future. We love and trust them. Seeing them seated behind me brings to mind a short story from Mount Kisco, New York. Once upon a time, there was a little red schoolhouse with a big room for 27 children. The teacher sat with an American flag on one side and a blackboard on the other. The children sat in rows facing her. The littlest was in the front. The youngest was seven, but she was very little. The biggest was 16, and he was six feet tall. The youngest was smart and could read with the older children. The biggest was kind of dumb, but it was strong, and he could help the teacher carry in the wood. In bad weather, he carried the littlest girl across the puddle in front of the schoolhouse, and sometime she helped him with his reading. Then one day, the state built a big highway right past the schoolhouse, and the state education department came by and said, great things are happening in education. There are special teachers for arithmetic, reading, art, and music. If you combine with other schoolhouses, you could have a great big school where your children could have all the advantages and big yellow buses could come and carry your children over the new highway right up to the school door. So the parents voted to consolidate, and the little red schoolhouse was abandoned. At first, things went very well at the big school, but after a while, the state education department said it wasn't providing the children with enough meaningful experiences. And some parents complained that the children were not learning to read and write and figure as well as they had in the little red schoolhouse. We'll try some new things, said the educators. So they tried the upgrade primer with fast readers. We're not slowed down by slow readers. And where children who had trouble with numbers did not get moved on to the next grade before they could add three and five. This helped, but not enough. We'll try something more, the educator said. We'll tear down some walls at the new school so the children will be working together in one big room. That way there will be less peer group competition. Finally, an important educator came along looked at the school and said, 
This is good, but it isn't good enough. It's too big, and the children are losing their identity. There are not enough interpersonal relationships in the infrastructure. What we really need is a one-room schoolhouse. (laughs) And since red is such a cheerful color, I think we ought to paint it red. The educator in this story did not mean that the consolidated school, the special teachers, or the upgraded primer were not advantages. The point of the story is that along with wonderful new discoveries in education, the emphasis must still be placed upon the individual and upon his needs and relationships with others. This this philosophy applies as importantly to church organizations as it does to the little red schoolhouse. In a revelation given to the prophet Joseph Smith just prior to the organization of the church, the Lord said, Remember, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. For behold, the Lord your Redeemer suffered death in the flesh, wherefore he suffered the pain of all men, that all men might repent and come unto him. And he hath risen again from the dead, that he might bring all men unto him on conditions of repentance. Our Lord's response to the Pharisees' question, Why do they on the Sabbath that which is unlawful? was the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. I understand from what the Lord has revealed to us through the prophets that people are his greatest concern. We are his children. We are somebody, as Elder Ashton so wonderfully stated this morning. We are his children, and he continually reveals himself through the prophets so that one day we can be like him. Programs, then, wonderfully inspired programs, like the Sabbath, exist to help people. If we're not careful, it is very easy to put the mechanics of the program ahead of the person. Jesus was constantly trying to put the spirit back into the letter of the law. Our first priority, I feel, as parents, leaders, and teachers should be within the home, the individual, or the individual within the church program. I remember some years ago an experience I had while directing one of the religious education programs in the church in Southern California. One of my responsibilities as a coordinator was to secure property, eventually erect an institute building, 
and then provide a program for our college youth. We had secured a wonderful institute site adjacent to the Los Angeles State College. Shortly after the deal was consummated, the state of California indicated to me that they wanted to take the property by right of eminent domain, which was their prerogative. I checked with my superiors, and they said, look into the legal side and see if we still don't have a chance. I did. We went into court for a hearing. The judge was impressed with the program of the church and what we do for youth, people. We were sent back to do some additional homework and gather added information. The day came for the final hearing. I had about eight hours' work to do in four, when at that very moment, about 10 o'clock one morning, a knock came at the door. And because of my frustration, I almost said, but it didn't, come in. Instead, I said, come in. <laughs> and in the framework of that door stood a 19-year-old USC freshman student who had refused our offers to come and join our group on four previous occasions. His head bowed, hands in his pocket. He said, Brother Dunn, I've got to see you now. And I almost said, but it didn't. <laughs> Can't you see I'm busy? Because I was. Fortunately, I had the presence of mind to invite him in. And as he took a chair, several questions went through my mind. Question one. What are you going to court for this morning, Paul? Well, to try to save a piece of property. What do you want the piece of property for, Paul? Well, to erect a building. Well, what do you want a building for? Well, to teach some students. What just knocked on your door? <laughs> oh, a student. And wouldn't you know, he took the whole four hours. <laughs> the time came for our legal counsel to arrive, and we went to court. I don't know all the ramifications. We lost the hearing and eventually the piece of property. And it took us two years to secure another site. You'd be happy with what the church has done at Los Angeles State College. But more important, we saved the boy. Had it been your son, I think you would have agreed we made the right decision. God grant us the vision as leaders, teachers, and parents to put people first. Remember, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. I am my personal witness. God lives. Jesus is the Christ. This is his church. This is his prophet. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ.
Amen. May I first commend and express gratitude to these several hundred wonderful young people who rendered so beautifully these two great hymns of the Restoration. The prophet Ezekiel declared, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word of my mouth, and give them warning from me. The inspired Book of Mormon prophets saw our day and warned us of the strategy of the adversary. Hear their words. For behold, at that day shall he, the devil, rage in the hearts of the children of men, and stir them up to anger against that which is good, and others will he pacify and lull them away into carnal security. Woe be unto him that hearkeneth unto the precepts of men, and denieth the power of God. Through a modern, modern prophet Joseph Smith, the Lord has given this further warning. Wherefore, the voice of the Lord is unto the ends of the earth, that all that will hear may hear. And the day cometh that they who will not hear the voice of the Lord, neither the voice of his servants, neither give heed to the words of the prophets and apostles, shall be cut off from among the people. For they have strayed from mine ordinances and have broken mine everlasting covenant. They seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way and after the image of his own God, whose image is in the likeness of the world. And then further, what I, the Lord, have spoken, I have spoken, and I excuse not myself. And though the heavens and earth pass away, my word shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled, whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. These latter warnings were given 140 years ago. The fulfillment is now. We are living witnesses unless we are blinded by our own complacency and the craftiness of evil men. As watchmen on the Tower of Zion, it is our obligation and right as leaders to speak out against current evils, evils that strike at the very foundation of all we hold dear as the true Church of Christ and as members of Christian nations. As one of these watchmen with a love for humanity, I accept humbly this obligation and challenge and gratefully Strive to do my duty without fear. In times as serious as these, we must not permit fear of criticism to keep us from doing our duty, even at the risk of our counsel being tabbed as political, as government becomes more and more entwined in our daily lives. In the crisis through which we are now passing, we have been fully warned. This has brought forth some criticism. There are some of us who do not want to hear the message. It embarrasses us. The things which are threatening our lives, our welfare, our freedoms, are the very things some of us have been condoning. Many do not want to be disturbed as they continue to enjoy their comfortable complacency. The Church is founded on eternal truth. We do not compromise principle. We do not surrender our standards regardless of current trends or pressures. Our allegiance to truth as a Church is unwavering. Speaking out against immoral or unjust actions has been the burden of prophets and disciples of God from time immemorial. 
It was for this reason that many of them were persecuted. Nevertheless, it was their God-given task as watchmen on the tower to warn the people. We live in an age of appeasement, the sacrificing of principle. Appeasement is not the answer. It is never the right answer. A milk and water allegiance kills, while a passionate devotion gives life and soul to any cause and its adherents. The troubles of the world may largely be laid at the doors of those who are neither hot nor cold, who always follow the line of least resistance, whose timid hearts flutter at taking sides for truth. As in the great council in heavens, so in the Church of Christ on earth, there can be no neutrality. We are or we are not on the side of the Lord. An unrelenting faith contemptuous of all compromise, will lead the Church and every member of it to triumph and the achievement of our high destiny. The final conquerors of the world will be the men and women, fewer many matters not, who fearlessly and unflinchingly cling to truth and who are able to say no as well as yes on, those lofty, on whose lofty banner is inscribed, No Compromise with Error. Tolerance is not conformity to the world's view and practices. We must not surrender our beliefs to get along with people, however beloved or influential they may be. Too high a price may be paid for social standing or even for harmony. The gospel rests upon eternal truth, and truth can never be deserted safely. It has been well said that our greatest national problem is erosion. Not erosion of the soil, but erosion of the national morality. The United States of America has been great because it has been free. It has been free because it has trusted in God and was founded upon the principles of freedom set forth in the Word of God. This nation has a spiritual foundation. To me, this land has a prophetic history. In the year 1831, Alexis de Trocqueville, the famous French historian, came to our country at the request of the French government to study our penal institutions. He also made a close study of our political and social institutions. In less than 10 years, de Tocqueville had become world famous as the result of a four-volume work which he wrote entitled Democracy in America. Here is his own stirring explanation of the greatness of America. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and he was not there, in her fertile fields and boundless prairies, and it was not there, in her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. Not until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. How strong is our will to remain free, to be good? False thinking and false ideologies dressed in the most pleasing forms, quietly, almost without our knowing it, 
seek to reduce our moral defenses and to captivate our minds. They entice with bright promises of security, cradle to the grave guarantees of many kinds. They masquerade under various names, but all may be recognized by one thing, one thing they all have in common, to erode away character and man's freedom to think and act for himself. Effort will be made to lull us away into false security. Proposals will be and are being offered and programs sponsored that have wide appeal. Attractive labels are usually attached to the most dangerous programs, often in the name of public welfare and personal security. Again, let us not be misled. Freedom can be killed by neglect as well as by direct attack. Too long have too many of us and people of the free world generally stood by as silent accessories to the crimes of assault against freedom, assault against basic economic and spiritual principles and traditions which have made nations strong. Let us strive for progress down the road of goodness and freedom with the help and blessings of God, the free people of the United States and the free world can and will face tomorrow without fear, without doubt, and with full confidence. We do not fear the phony population explosion, nor do we fear a shortage of food. If we can be free and good, the Lord has declared the earth is full and there is enough and to spare. We can accept this promise with confidence. President Calvin Coolidge pinpointed the problem some years ago with these words, we do not need more material development, we need more spiritual development. We do not need more intellectual power, we need more moral power. We do not need more intellectual, we do not need more knowledge, we need more character. We do not need more government, we need more culture. We do not need more law, we need more religion. We do not need more of the things that are seen, we need more of the things that are unseen. It is on that side of life that it is desirable to put the emphasis at the present time. If that side is strengthened, the other side will take care of itself. It is that side which is the foundation of all else. If the foundation be firm, the superstructure will stand. As a free people, we are following very closely, in many respects, the pattern which led to the downfall of the great Roman Empire. A group of well-known historians has summarized those conditions leading to the downfall of Rome in these words. Rome had known a pioneer beginning, not unlike our own pioneer heritage, and then entered into two centuries of greatness, reaching its pinnacle in the second of those centuries, going into the decline and collapse in the third. Yet the sins of decay were becoming apparent in the latter years of the second century. It is written that there were vast increases in the number of the idle rich and the idle poor. The latter, the idle poor, were put on a permanent dole, a welfare system not unlike our own. And as this system became permanent, the recipients of public welfare increased in number. They organized into a political bloc with sizable power. They were not hesitant about making their demands known. 
nor was the government hesitant about agreeing to their demands, and with ever-increasing frequency. Would-be emperors catered to them. The great, solid middle class, Rome's strength then as ours is today, was taxed more and more to support a bureaucracy that kept growing larger and even more powerful. Surtaxes were imposed upon incomes to meet emergencies. The government engaged in deficit spending. The denarius, a silver coin similar to our half dollar, began to lose its silvery hue. It took on a copper color as the government reduced the silver content. Even then, Gresham's law was at work because the real silver coin soon disappeared. It went into hiding. Military service was an obligation highly honored by the Romans. Indeed, a foreigner could win Roman citizenship simply by volunteering for service in the legions of Rome. But with increasing affluence and opulence, the young men of Rome began avoiding this service, finding excuses to remain in the soft and sordid life of the city. They took to using cosmetics and wearing feminine-like hairdos and garments until it became difficult, the historians tell us, to tell the sexes apart. Among the teachers and scholars was a group called the Cynics, whose number let their hair and beards grow and who wore slovenly clothes and professed indifference to worldly goods as they heaped scorn on what they called middle-class values. The morals declined. It became unsafe to walk in the countryside or the city streets. Rioting was commonplace, and sometimes whole sections of towns and cities were burned. And all the time, the twin diseases of confiscatory taxation and creeping inflation were waiting to deliver the death blow. And then finally, all these forces overcame the energy and ambition of the middle class. Rome fell. We are now approaching the end of our second century. In 1787, Edward Gibbon completed his noble work, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Here is the way he accounted for the fall. First, the undermining of the dignity and sanctity of the home, which is the basis of human society. Higher and higher taxes and spending of public monies for free bread and circuses for the populace. The mad craze for pleasure. Sports becoming every year more and more exciting and brutal the building of gigantic armaments, when the real enemy was within the decadence of the people, the decay, decay of religion, faith fading into mere farm, losing touch with life and becoming impotent to warn and guide the people. Is there a parallel for us in America today? Could the same reasons that destroyed Rome destroy America and possibly other countries of the free world? For eight years in Washington, I had this prayerful statement on my desk. Oh, God, give us men with a mandate higher than the ballot box. The lessons of history, many of them very sobering, ought to be turned to during this hour of our great achievements, because during the hour of our success is our greatest danger. Even during the hour of our great prosperity, a nation may sow the seeds of its own destruction. History reveals that rarely, rarely is a great civilization conquered from without 
unless it has weakened or destroyed itself within. The lessons of history stand as guideposts to help us safely chart the course for the future. As American citizens, as citizens of the free world, we need to rouse ourselves to the problems which confront us as great Christian nations. We must recognize that these fundamental basic principles, moral and spiritual, lay at the very foundation of our past achievements. To continue to enjoy present blessings, we must return to these basic and fundamental principles. Economics and morals are both part of one inseparable body of truth. They must be in harmony. We need to square our actions with these eternal verities. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints stands firm in support of spiritual, great spiritual and moral principles which have been the basic traditions of the free world. We oppose every evil effort to downgrade or challenge the eternal verities which have undergirded civilization from the beginning. We will use every honorable means to strengthen the home and family, to encourage obedience to the first and great commandment, to multiply and replenish the earth through noble parenthood, and to strengthen character through adherence to high spiritual and moral principles. In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, chastity will never be out of date. We have one standard for men and women, and that standard is moral purity. We oppose and abhor the damnable practice of wholesale abortion and every other unholy and impure act which strikes at the very foundation of the home and family, our most basic institutions. A continuation of these immoral practices will surely bring down the wrath and judgments of the Almighty. In our concentration upon materialism and material acquisitions, are we forgetting the spiritual basis upon which our prosperity, security, and freedom rest? God help us to repent of our evil ways and humble ourselves before the offended power. There is great safety in a nation on its knees. What assurance it would give of the much-needed blessings of the Lord if the American people and people everywhere could all be found daily, night and morning, on their knees, expressing gratitude for blessings already received, acknowledging our dependence upon God and seeking His divine guidance. The spectacle of a nation praying is more awe-inspiring, more powerful than the explosion of an atomic bomb. The force of prayer is greater than any possible combination of man-controlled powers, because prayer is man's greatest means of tapping the resources of God. The Founding Fathers accepted this eternal verity. Do we? Will we? Yes, it is in our own enlightened self-interest to engage in this simple practice, this powerful practice of prayer, 
Roger Babson said many years ago, what this country needs more than anything else is old-fashioned family prayer. Yes, our greatest need is a return to the old-fashioned, time-tested verities. God help us as free men to recognize the source of our blessings, the threat to our freedom and our moral and spiritual standards, and the need for humble yet courageous action to preserve these priceless, time-tested blessings, I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. President Romney recently said that welfare is not a program of the Church, it is of the essence of the Church. I truly believe that welfare is more than just furnishing the temporal needs of the Church members. Welfare welfare is for every single member of the Church. It involves the 96% who do not need to be assisted by the commodities and by those things furnished by the bishop's storehouse. Welfare is for those who have to, to give as well as those who have not to receive. Now, the scriptures are replete with many things bearing witness to what President Romney has said. In fact, in Mosiah, King Benjamin said, And ye will not suffer that the beggar putteth up his petition to you in vain. Perhaps thou shalt say, This man hath brought upon himself his misery. Therefore I will not give unto him of my food, nor impart unto him of my substance. But whosoever doeth this, the, great hath, the same hath great cause to repent. And except he repenteth of that which he hath done, he shall be cast out and have no interest in the kingdom of God. For behold, are we not all beggars? And then clearly Paul said, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am as but sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. And then, of course, the great Savior of heaven and earth came and in one of his great parables, I think, taught us a, a most profound lesson. He said there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linens and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate daily and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell lift up his eyes and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he said, Father Abraham, send down Lazarus that he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, Remembers that thou in thy lifetime receivest good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, and now art thou art tormented, and he is comforted. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those desiring to come to us from hence cannot, neither can they go to thence from you. And then he said, I pray thee then, Father Abraham, wilt thou send him down to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come unto this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, then would they believe. And Abraham said, If they hear not Moses nor the prophets, neither would they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. I believe the Savior here teaches, a great, teaches us a great lesson. There are those who have want, and in his great charitable way he will provide. For I believe the pure love of Christ is welfare. 
I believe it seeks out beyond the dimensions of that which we do. I think it's, it's charity in its purest form. And then Meyer Brooks Welch, in her great poem, said, "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while, while to waste much time in the old violin, so he held it up with a smile. "'What am I bidding, good folks?' he cried. "'Who'll start the bidding for me? "'A dollar, a dollar, then two, only two, two dollars, and who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, and going and almost gone. "'But no, from the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow.' Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loose strings, he played a melody pure and sweet as a caroling angel sings. And the music ceased, and the auctioneer, in a voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with a bow. A thousand dollars, then two, two thousand, and who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice. And going and gone, said he. Now the people cheered, but some of them cried, We do not quite understand. What changed its worth? Swift came the reply, the touch of a master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap by the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he hurries on. He's going once, he's going twice. He's going and almost gone, but the master comes in the foolish crowd. Never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the Master's hand. I believe that's what it is. It's more than just physical welfare. It's the social and emotional needs furnished and provided and trained and, and taught in the Church. It's taking care of the health, those who have twisted bodies. I believe we have a great and sacred responsibility in these, this area. I think presently you probably said it more beautifully in our day than any I have read in, in 1946 October Conference. He said, I know there are powers that can draw close to one who fills his soul with love. I came to a night some years ago when upon my bed I realized that before I could be worthy of the high place to which I had been called, I must love and forgive every soul that walks the earth. And in that hour I came to know, and I received a peace and a direction and a comfort and an inspiration that told me things to come and gave me impressions that I knew were from a divine source. You see, isn't that what it is? Isn't that the prophet having the worth, the, the individual welfare of every living soul on the earth being his responsibility and caring about them and forgiving them? Well, I have a great friend, Brother Les Goats, great and gifted writer, and I asked him if I could lift part of a story he told, how welfare first came into his home it was way back in 1918, that climactic year, when you recall the end of World War I, almost, and it was in the late autumn. The Black Scourge, the Great Black Plague, had taken its toll across the land. Fourteen million people died that year of this terrible scourge. And Brother Les and his brother Floyd were in the service. His brother Francis and his father were home with the, the sisters and his mother. and They were in the sugar beet business. They'd go out into the fields, and it was tedious work. They'd plow up the then-frozen-in-the-ground sugar beets, and one by one they'd clip the tops and throw them into the red sugar beet wagon and then haul them off to the factory, barely able to make one load a day. And it was under such circumstance that one evening after they had taken the load in that they received a phone call from the oldest brother, or one of the older brothers, George Albert, who was the superintendent of schools or superintendent of the state industrial school at Ogden with the very terrifying news that Kenny the son of, of Charles Hiram Goats, another brother 
up in Ogden who was the farm manager of the same school that he had just passed away after a very violent sickness for a few hours. And would Father please come to Ogden and pick up the remains of this, this tiny soul? And so the next morning he said, My sturdy old dad cranked up the flap uh, curtain Chevrolet and drove to Five Points in Ogden. And when he got there, he found uh, his grandson, Kenny, cradled in the ar arms of his son. And now the father stricken, the black plague oozing from his nose and ears. And he said, now take my boy home and bury him in the plot and then come back for me tomorrow. Well, they took the, boy, the body of the boy home and then they made a casket and there were no grave diggers. They were all being involved in their own problems and, and digging graves for their own kindred. And so the father and friends went out and dug the grave. The sisters made a lining for the, the casket and, and then they buried the body after brief service in the old Lehigh Cemetery. And then that night after they returned home, the phone rang again. Charles had passed away, and would Father mind going down to the railroad station and picking up the body? The Larkin mortuary people had furnished a casket, and would, would Father pick up the body of Charles? And which he did. And of course, they put his body or in, the, in the casket on the front porch for an impromptu viewing. But very few people came near to view because of the dread of this feared plague. And so they took the body over to the grave site where again the father and his son friends had, had uh, dug the grave and then they committed the great noble soul of Charles Hiram Goats back to his father in heaven. And the next morning they received word then that Vesta, a daughter, and Elaine, a daughter, and Railden and Pauline, two of the babies, had also been stricken in the same family and uh, the Vesta had passed away, and would Father please come up and pick her up? And that day the Father made again, he said, my inconquerable sturdy old dad made a third heartbreaking trip back to Ogden and picked up Vesta, and as he went into the house, he saw the half-crazed, grief-stricken mother kneeling at the side of the bed of her beloved Elaine, five years old, saying, Heavenly Father, please don't take this one. I can't spare one more child. Please don't take any more of my darlings from me. And then he took the body of Vestin and returned back to Lehigh to bury the third one. And before he arrived home, Elaine had passed away, and so my dad had to make that fourth trip. And then he said uh, the next morning after they had buried Elaine and Vesta beside their father and, and brother Kenny, they received no more glad tidings. Apparently, uh, Railden and Pauline had pulled through, and so... My father said, I guess we better get about our harvest. We better go out and, and dig the beets out of the ground if they're not frozen in too tight. So he had Franz hitch up the four horses to the wagon. He pulled it out in front of the house, and then they both jumped on and went out to the old Lehigh Road, their Saratoga Road, west of Lehigh, and started out toward their field. And as they did, they passed wagon load after wagon load of beets. And as they passed, they would say, Hiya, George. Hi, Uncle George. Sure sorry, Uncle George. The Lord bless you, Uncle George. We're all praying for you, Uncle George. And then on the very last wagon was the freckle-faced, red-headed Jasper Rolf, the town comedian. He says, smile, and he said, that's all of them, Uncle George. And then he said, my father turned to me and said, I wish that was all of ours. And then he said, they pulled down, pulled on the field, and my boyfriend jumped off and, and opened the gate, and we pulled the, the horse wagon, load, wagon and horse and wagon onto the field. And he said, then we climbed down off the wagon and scanned the field from the right to the left up and down, down, 
And lo and behold, there wasn't a sugar beet left in the whole field. And then he said, my dad reached down and grabbed a, a handful of that brown soil that meant so much to him in one hand, and in his thumbless left hand he grabbed a sugar beet top, and then he sat down in a pile of sugar beets. That man who inside of six days had brought four of his loved ones home and buried them, had, had made caskets and dug the graves, this man who never faltered nor wavered, never flinched, sat down and sobbed like a child. And then he said after a few minutes he stood up and took his big red bandana handkerchief out of his pocket and wiped his eyes, looked up skyward, and he said, Heavenly Father, thanks for the elders of our ward. Isn't that what the Lord would want us to do if he were here? For didn't he entreat us by saying, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Who receives the greater blessing? Who received the greater blessing? Was it the elders who went out in the field and, and harvested brother goats, load of beets? I want you to know they received the great blessing. And now, in conclusion, you remember the words of Paul. He said, And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. And I pray that the charity of Jesus Christ will be and abide with each one of us, that we'll understand the total dimension of welfare services in the Church. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Master. Amen. It was a wintry Sunday morning in northern New York. The temperature was several degrees below freezing. The walks were icy. Roads were blocked with heavy snowdrifts. No one came to church that morning except the minister and an 89-year-old woman who had hobbled ten blocks from where she lived. Surprised at seeing her, the minister called her by name and asked, How did you get here on such a stormy morning? My heart gets here first, was the cheerful reply, and then it's easy for the rest of me. This simple illustration brings to mind that all individuals are confronted with decisions to make every day, and whatever the choice, it is commensurate with the persuasion of the heart. These persuasions of the heart are related to two opposing forces constantly at work within every human being. They are the forces of good and evil, which the Master referred to as God and mammon. Coupled with these forces is the individual's power to reason, which only man of all God's creations possesses. This enables him to make choices. It is man's control valve of what he wants to be. The forces governed by his own reasoning determines the nature and quality of the choice made. Thus, that which we call character is formed. We refer to this privilege of choice as the agency of man. It has been said that every day is election day, for throughout every hour of every day we each exercise our right of choice. We don't have to have a local or national election in order to elect or vote. A man's election can determine the deciding vote for or against his own success. You elect to gain a thorough knowledge of your business or you don't. 
You elect to be honest or you don't. You elect to save a part of what you earn or you don't. You elect to always do your best or you don't. And by your own election, you will be defeated or you will succeed. Our Father in Heaven was aware of the reality of this principle of agency in the beginning. We read this from the scriptures in some detail. Now the Lord had shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was. And God saw these souls that they were good, and there stood one among them that was like unto God. And he said unto those who were with him, We will go down, for there is space there, and we will take of these materials, and we will make an earth whereon these may dwell. And we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. And they who keep their first estate shall be added upon, and they who keep their second estate shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. And the Lord said, Whom shall I send? And one answered like unto the Son of Man, Here am I, send me. And said, Father, thy will be done and the glory be thine forever. And another answered and said, Here am I, send me. I will be thy son, and I will redeem all mankind, that one soul shall not be less lost. And surely I will do it. Wherefore give me thine honor. And the Lord said, I will send the first. And the second was angry and kept not his first estate, and he became Satan the father of all lies, to deceive and to blind men and to lead them captive at his will, even as many as would not hearken unto my voice. Satan rebelled against God and sought to destroy the agency of man, which I, the Lord God, had given him. Unfortunately, many do not realize the quality and blessing of that gift of agency of man. If we would but reason the matter, we would come to realize, as is expressed in this thought, choice is an element of human dignity. Without the power of choice, a man is a lot less than a man. Without the exercise of choice, a man never discovers what he can be or what he can do. Choice is the key to the future. Since the authorship of the agency of man is God's, should we not look to him for the best media to help us to control our choices. The media he has given to us are the words spoken by his prophets, as are recorded in the scriptures. Jesus confirms this in, in responding to the recreant Jews of his time, who accused him of breaking the Sabbath by healing a man on that day. He included in his rebuke to them these words, And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me, Ye have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me, and ye will not come to me that ye might have life. The guide to the answer to their problem was to be found in the scriptures. He rebuked them for not accepting the scriptures which they had. The guide to the solution of every problem of life is to be found there. The knowledge on which to pursue our reasoning is in them. Listen to the counsel of Paul to Timothy. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation 
through faith which is in Jesus Christ, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. As fellow workers for the cause of building the kingdom of God, they are our source of faith, commitment, determination, and leadership, doctrine for the foundation of our decisions. Let us refer to the scriptures for a few well-known examples to illustrate. I relate to the example of faith, the faith of Job, a very affluent, God-fearing man, having much of world's goods and a fine family. Overnight he suffered the sudden loss of all his earthly possessions and his children, and then responded with the situation to the situation with faith and realism. He rent his mantle and shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked I shall return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then upon being rendered with bodily affliction and poor health, his own wife chided him and said unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Job answered, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And then in the midst of all his affliction, Job gave this testimony. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. As to commitment, is there a more touching example of devotion than Ruth to her mother-in-law, Naomi, as Naomi pled with Ruth to return to her own people following the death of her husband, when Ruth clave unto her and said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou goest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee of me. And Queen Esther, in her determination to save her kindred from people from destruction, seeking God's help through fasting, instructed Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast for me, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night and day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. And Joshua the leader, as he turned the hearts of a belligerent people by his example of choice as he spoke to them, Now therefore fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose lands ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, 
God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And the people said unto Joshua, The Lord our God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. These are but a few of the unnumbered examples to be found in the scriptures. But even as we examine these few evidences of outstanding characters, our spirits receive the inspiration of their strength. Reasoning tells us that the development of their lives had to be built on making proper choices. They were established on truth. Their examples teach us celestial lessons. The Lord's call to us is, Come now and let us reason together. He wants us to listen to and consider his doctrine. The scriptures tell us this, that men might be made partakers of the glories which were to be revealed. The Lord sent forth the fullness of his gospel, his everlasting covenant, reasoning in plainness and simplicity. He wants us to become acquainted with his gospel, to test it, to prove it, to participate in it, and use it as a base on which to make our decisions. This is that men might base their choices on truth. When reason is joined with truth, there is convincing logic that sets up the path in our hearts that leads upward and onward to a nobler life. Reason is only compatible with truth. Error and evil, no matter how one may try to reason with it, still remains error and evil, leading to chaos. It is difficult to understand that anyone who, after examining the truth, could say unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. One of the sad expressions of the scriptures when Christ said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. The expression is applicable in this day to those who deliberately will not come and reason with the Lord. Let us incline our hearts toward God, that we may receive these words of John. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God, and whatsoever we ask we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment, that he that, he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.